All right, this morning, we are continuing on with our series, uh, this short series in the book of First Peter, of Living for God. And if you remember last week, we talked some about this living for God and how it works out in the church. And, um, and then we kind of explored some more as Peter was talking about not only how we are humble and care for each other as a church, but then also how we interact with the world around us. And it becomes sort of this uh, light that comes out from this church family that then blesses our community around us. Uh, this week, um, looking at this idea of trading up, uh, Peter goes on, to, he continues on uh, encouraging these churches in Asia Minor and talks with them about trading up, about leaving the muck of their old life behind and taking on this, this new love uh, for the church. So as I've been thinking about it this last week, uh, Peter calls us to live these lives that glorify God. And um, I pray this all the time for myself, uh, for my kids, for Tracy and I. I pray this for our church that we would live lives uh, so faithfully that people would actually praise Jesus because of us. They would see the way we live, the way we treat people with integrity, with compassion, with generosity. And they would say, you know, I'm not sure what everything else I believe about Christianity, but these Christians of the Balfour Covenant Church, they are faithful people, and I can't help but praise God. I can't do anything else but give God thanks for what they have done in my life. But... Um, as much as I pray that, this passage has got me asking. Asking this question of, you know, what does that look like in our world? How does that look like in our lives when we interact with the world around us? But also, how does that, or what should that look like within our church family about how we treat each other? And I know some of you asked this question, and hopefully by the end of today, all of us are asking this question, um, asking about, you know, I want my life to bring, play, uh, to, to bring praise to Jesus. What does that look like? How do we do that? When we face pressure from our non-Christian friends, whether it's at work or with our friends that we hang out with, what does it look like? And what does it look like in our church family about how do we, above everything else, love each other well? So, uh, thankfully, uh, we don't just have to guess at this. Peter gives us some instruction today. Uh, we're going to be looking at First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 1-11, to 11, if you want to open your Bibles to that. Uh, we're going to be working through it uh, just chunk by chunk, and digging into what Peter says here. Also, too, it's in your bulletins as well, on the inside of the sermon guide, uh, if you want to take a look at it there. So we just jump in with where Peter begins. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he or she does not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. All right, so he's saying since Christ suffered in his body. This is, again, the foundation. It's actually going back a couple verses, kind of what we were talking about last week. Um, I'll just put it on the screen here for you. Uh, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is a key part, to bring you, to bring us back to God. So Jesus' death on the cross brings us to God, right? So that's, that's since Jesus has done this. But also it says, it, referring to baptism, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So there's these two parts here. The first part is Jesus' death on the cross that brings us to God. Then the second part at the bottom, verse 22, talking about how Jesus actually ascended to God's right hand. He is victorious over all, all, over, over all powers and authorities. And so through him, we have victory. 
So since Jesus has done all this, that's the part that, that Peter was just talking about. Since Jesus has done all of this, let me go back just one here. Since Jesus has done all this, suffered in his body, do these next few things. All right? So then he moves on to this next part. He says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And, I, you know, I think that idea, the same attitude, um, I was looking at it and doing quite a bit of study on the word, the Greek word behind it there. And actually, Professor Jobes, the, the New Testament scholar I've been reading as I've been studying First Peter, she had a great word here. She used, instead of uh, same attitude, she used the word resolve, to have the same resolve that Jesus had. All right? Jesus is our model here. And that's what, he's, what Peter is setting up for us as we move through the rest of this passage. It says, because... He or anyone, he or she who has suffered in the body is done with sin. Now, we need to be careful with what Peter is saying here because this is not just a, a, a formula you can take out of the passage and apply to all life because we know people who have suffered, even Christians who have suffered, who don't seem to be quite done with sin. They still, have, over the years, even though they've had an amazing uh, time or a powerful time of transformation through suffering, years later... I can speak from my own experience, they still sin with things like envy or anger. So I don't think he's saying here, like in terms of a formula, I think actually what Peter is talking about here is an ideal. So saying that, trying to speak this into their lives, so to speak, that if you have suffered for Jesus, we should be done with sin. The ideal is that we would no longer sin in the body. And I was thinking about this, uh, about with my, with my kids, uh, in our family, we have a saying that, uh, you know, like, we don't say stupid, right? And that's something we've constantly taught our boys since they were little. Occasionally, they still call each other that. You know, like, oh, that's, you know, Corbin's being stupid. And I'll say, Trace and I'll say something like, you know, we don't say stupid. And then usually they, they, you know, correct themselves. But sometimes I wonder if in their mind they're saying, what do you mean we don't say stupid? I just said stupid. <laughs> of course we say stupid. And so... But the point here being is when I say, we don't say stupid, I'm not saying that we never say it. I'm saying ideally, in our family, we don't say stupid. I think Peter is doing something similar here. He's saying that when we suffer uh, in life and continue to follow Jesus through it, that not that, that we won't sin, but that we shouldn't sin, that we should be done with it, that we put it behind us. He's speaking of the ideal here. All right, and then he says, um, as a result, he does not live the rest of his life, uh, earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. He's just saying that we uh, take on this new life, that we be giving, begin living this new way following Jesus. So Jesus is at the center of what Peter is saying here. This, this new life, that we live this new life uh, into uh, a living hope in Christ. We begin living this life with Jesus and so he doesn't want us, Peter's encouraging the church, don't go back to that old way of life. All right. <clears throat> and then Peter says this. He says, now this is the part where he gets right into it. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Okay, now there's a few things in here we need to break down, all right? So, um, Peter's basically saying here is that you've already spent enough time mucking around in the sin. 
these words here, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgy, carousing, detestable idolatry, kind of fit in three kind of main categories. The first ones have to do with sexual sin. And basically, in the ancient world, people were really indulgent with sexual sin. And, you know, you might say, you know, Jason, what's changed? Um, So there might be some parallels. I think there are some parallels in our culture with the first century of indulgence in sexual sin. And so he's saying here, don't, don't keep indulging in that stuff. The, the really like, kind of twisted indulgences, appetites that people, even in our culture, have. He's saying, you've, if you've done that in the past, you're done with it now. Don't go back to that. Okay, so one of them is sexual sin. The other one is, is drunkenness. And um, it's actually talked about here in a couple different ways. One of them is just outright drunkenness. The other is kind of like frat party, um, party star- like lifestyle. You know, that, that was pretty common in the ancient world, too, where if it was a holiday, especially like a civic or a religious holiday, like it was marked with tons of merrymaking, which is, a, which is a quaint euphemism for people got hammered, drunk, and it was like a frat party. And those of you who don't know what a frat or a college party looks like, um, it's, imagine like this house that's in shambles, people laying all over the floor, puke on the floor, uh, smell of beer and whatever. I mean, he's talking about that sort of partying. Avoid that sort of stuff, those sort of, that sort of life. Okay? If you've done that in the past, and I can speak from my own experience, leave that behind. The last one is detestable idolatries. And you know, it's, it's, we're not sure what Peter means precisely by this because there were different religious practices that were pretty ugly. For example, <clears throat> some people to worship the goddess Artemis, the goddess of fertility, um, sometimes men would go to that temple and they would sleep with prostitutes there as a way of, quote-unquote, worshiping Artemis. He's saying don't, indel- and don't engage in that stuff anymore. Sometimes people would actually sacrifice animals, people, or children. He's saying these sort of idolatries, these are detestable, these are abominations. Don't engage in them anymore. So you can almost kind of get a sense of what life uh, was like for the Christians of Asia Minor, what life around them was like. And he's saying, if you've done this in the past, leave it in the past. Walk away with it. You are walk away from it. You are a new creation in Jesus. Okay. So he says um, to avoid all these things. And then there's this part here. Uh, he says, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them in the flood of dissipation. And, you know, it's interesting. I want to just draw one point here to this idea of flood of dissipation. I don't know what the NIV people, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, dissipation was a more common word, but I don't know about you guys, but this word isn't very helpful for me. Uh, them with the same flood of dissipation. Actually, so I was kind of trying to get at it. The word here is asotia, like without um, salvation, without saving. And it's kind of this idea of wasting their life. He says, don't plunge with them into this waste of life, this waste of time, this sort of drunken frat party sort of lifestyle. If you've been done with that, don't waste your life with it anymore. Okay? And then he goes on to this. He says, so they heap abuse on you because you don't join with them anymore. And some of you have talked with me about feeling this. You know, you, become, you begin following Jesus and you realize that your friends treat you differently now. Because you are different now. The idea of, of partying and having like this just debauchery-laden uh, house party just seems wrong and not fun anymore. 
And so your friends look at you and they just think, you know, what's wrong with you? Why don't you hang with us anymore? Do you think you're too good for us? And so they can heap abuses on you. You know, people are fiercely tribal. If, you, if they feel like you're part of their gang and then something changes in you and you want out, some people will encourage you. They'll say, you know, I know the way we live is wrong and it's, it just messes up our lives. I'm, I'm happy for you. Get out while you can. There are some people who think like that. But there are some who think, who go the other direction. And they say, you know, who do you think you are? You think you're better than us now? You think you're judging us now because you don't join in this horrible stuff that we do? People have all sorts of different responses. And Peter's talking here to this church because they were no doubt receiving the abuse. People who were saying, what do you think you are? You think you're too good for us now? Peter is encouraging them to continue on, stay faithful to Jesus. See, in, in Peter's day, churches are the people of the church. Uh, Christians were viewed as killjoys. They were viewed as buzzkill. They were viewed as people who were stick in the mud. Like they, they, they wouldn't join in uh, to the, 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 the messed up behaviors of their time. Like one of them was uh, going to the theater. Christians would avoid the theater because uh, not only was like, it's not that they had something against acting and theater, but actually that sometimes they were pretty promiscuous. It was pretty risque um, sort of shows, and the Christians knew that like, we can't go watch like these people have sex on stage. Like we can't be a part of that. Or another thing too that Christians avoid blood sports like chariot races or gladiators, where people were killed or would kill other people for entertainment, for the people sitting in the Colosseum to watch. They knew that they couldn't be a part of that. Not only that, but they couldn't in, in join in with the civic holidays, um, you know, certain holidays around, like, the emperor. In the ancient world, in the time that Peter's writing this, it was really common for emperors to declare themselves gods and then force anybody, like their loyal subjects, to worship them as a god as a way of gathering their support and making sure that everybody was in line. As a Christian, you can imagine, you can't do this. One, not because it's not true and ridiculous, but also because you are devoted to Jesus, and you would worship no other gods, no other idols. And so these Christians were not only seen as as party poopers, but also as uh, problems of the state, as subversives who were trying to undermine the empire. And so Peter is encouraging them, stay faithful to Jesus. But here's the other thing, too. Not only that was the trouble politically, it was also the, the trouble religiously. See, in the ancient world, they believed in lots of different gods, and they believed that everything in life, every up and down, every um, fortune and every mishap was somehow God's um, interaction in your life. And so it was really frustrating for people that Christians wouldn't get in line and, and worship the gods. For example, they would be frustrated that they wouldn't worship the god Artemis, the, god, the goddess of, of um, fertility because they believed that she was the one that they had to appease to have a good crop for the year, to be fed for the year. And because Christians wouldn't go along with it, if a Christian, if they had a bad crop, you know who they'd blame? The Christians. Because they won't get in line, because the goddess Artemis is angry at these Christians who won't worship them, and so that's why our crops have failed. And who do they blame? Christians. Who do they go after? Christians. And so Peter has encouraged them, even though you face all this social pressure, Continuing, continue following Jesus, even if they heap abuse on you. So people have all these different responses. You can see how not only were the Christians outcasts in their day, but even that, the, the personal relationships, people would just be upset or hurt. Why aren't you partying with us? Do you think you're better than us? And so they heap abuse. 
And then Peter says this. He says, but ultimately, everybody will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So just to point out here, this living and the dead is like a, it's a rhetorical way of saying everybody. Everybody has to stand, has to give account to Christ and they, they will stand before him at the end of their life. And so he's saying, you know, your friends who, who abuse you, who heap abuse on you, we're all going to have to stand in front of Jesus. So don't, don't collapse, don't fold to their thoughts, to their beliefs, because they're going to have to stand in front of him as well. And then he says this, uh, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So, uh, the point here is that um, Jesus is preaching, and some people have read this passage and thought, you know, did, does Jesus preach to people? Does Jesus go and meet with people after they've died? Um, you know, people who aren't Christian to kind of give them one last chance. And, you know, that's not what this passage is saying. It's actually saying to people who are now dead. And what he's meaning here is the Christians who began following Jesus and have since died. See, in the, ancient, uh, in the first century in the church, uh, there was a strong belief that Christ was coming back in their lifetime, that Jesus would return. And so they believed that they would not see death or that that sort of belief began to grow, that we won't die until we see, we'll actually see Jesus. He'll come before we die. And so when people start dying, they start raising prickly questions of like, were they actually saved? Is their salvation secure? And so Peter is saying that even those um, who are dead now they are still okay. They're still saved because of their faith in Jesus. And so he's trying to clear up some of this confusion. And he's saying that they won't be judged according to the life and the body here on earth, but actually they'll be, they'll be judged according to their faith in Jesus with regard to the spirit. And the point he's making here is that people around them, maybe even non-Christians, would judge that these people died, so they must have done something wrong. And Peter is continuing to encourage them that because we die does not mean we've done something wrong. Now, we live in a different time, and that is um, less of an issue for us. We know that um, until Christ come again, that death is a part of our lives. But he's trying to encourage the church that suffering and death do not mean that you have been forsaken by God, but actually that you might actually be doing everything right um, and you are following him faithfully. Okay. So, to put all this together, Peter's, to put it in my words, he's saying, trade up. Live this new kind of life. Um, saying this, leave the muck behind. Leave the muck. The muck in your life. And if you lived in those old ways, leave it behind. Because you're no longer indulging in these lusts, these ugly appetites. They might cost you friends, but ultimately, we all stand before God. And we'll have to give an account. Not according to what we've done in the body, but according to our faith in Jesus with regard to the Spirit. Peter's giving them a rundown uh, of how to live in this world around us. And then he shifts gears, right? So he's been talking about our relationship with the world around us. Now he's going to shift gears on how we live in the church. All right, so we're just going to take this chunk of, of text here and we're going to build it up, okay? So stick with me here. He says, the end of all things is near. Um, 
This is a new element to the foundation of what he's been talking about. So before this, remember he was saying since Christ has suffered in the body, that was sort of the foundation. Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection was the foundation. Now Peter adds this element to it because the end of all things is near. Okay, now it's, um, it's right for us um, to understand that, uh, that we as Christians, we live in light of the reality that Christ is coming again. That the end of all things is near. And we entered into this last phase, these final days, these end days, these end times, when Christ was born, when he was crucified, and was risen again. We entered into this last phase of God's redemption history. So we've been in these end, down, in these end times since then. All right? Now, it's interesting because as Christians, over the centuries, over the thousands of years, there's been lots of different views on understanding the timing and the events of Christ's return. You know, some, um, some of you feel really encouraged when you look at world events and you line them up with prophetic things from the Old Testament or from the New Testament and you see like, yes, we are getting closer and closer and that's encouraging to you. Some people look at that stuff and you say, you know, I, it, it doesn't make sense to me and I don't see the same things that my brothers or sisters see. But biblically it says here that we are in the end time and that we should live in light of that. So whether you look at the world around us and the natural disasters and events in the Middle East, or if you just look at Scripture, to realize that we live in the end of time, when all things are near their end or their completion. And so we faithfully follow Jesus in light of that. The thing is, based on everything that Peter uh, has been teaching us, this church, over the last few weeks, and where he's going here in a few minutes, for us to fight amongst each other about a view of Christ's return is actually the wrong direction. It's actually counter to what Peter is teaching us. So it's okay for us to have different opinions about, especially about Jesus' return. What it's not good for us to do is to fight about it or to speak condescendingly to each other because of it. You know, some people talk about, um, some look at Christians who look at prophecy and things like that, and they say, oh, you know, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists, you know, don't do that. Or those who are really involved in prophecy say, you know, oh, every, all the other Christians are a bunch of sheep. They don't know anything that's going on. Don't do that. That we continue to love each other. And actually, if you look back at what Peter has been teaching us, uh, this is actually from two weeks ago, the sermon, uh, this text was, to sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So even though Christians uh, have different opinions on end times, that we continue to treat each other well with humility, above all else, loving each other. All right? So he's saying the end of all things is near. Um, And then he says this. He says, therefore. This is a key phrase here. All right? Therefore. And the rest of everything else we're going to talk about is a response to this reality that the end of all things is near. Okay, so he says this. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. The, uh, the word there, self-controlled, is actually be sober, as in the opposite of drunk. It's a bit of a play on words. I think uh, Peter's having some fun here. And he's saying, uh, not only be clear-minded, but also stay sober. Stay sober literally, but also figuratively. To have a clear mind. And then he says this too. <clears throat> he says, this tricky word here, he says, uh, so that you can pray. 
And, you know, I don't want to get into Greek prepositions with you, but um, this word that's behind this, this translation of can is actually, I think it's the result. And so he's not just saying so that you have the option to pray or so that you're able to pray. I think it maybe includes that, but also actually so that you will pray. Have a clear mind and a self-controlled or sober uh, outlook so that you will pray. Not so that you will look at the world around us and be disgusted and judgmental and say, I hope they get what they, you know, they get what they deserve, but actually that you would be compassionate. That you would look at the brokenness in the world around us, the wars, the natural disasters, and we would pray. That we would continue to pray for people that they would realize who Jesus is and they begin trusting their life to him. So, uh, he's saying that we continue in this compassion, but also that we remain clear-minded and sober. And it's interesting, he says here, so that we can pray. Not so that we can be ready to debate somebody and wrestle them to the ground, academically speaking, but that's so we can pray. Prayer is the heavy lifting of the church. And I know we live in a really practical time where prayer is often seen as a last resort. You know, if, when everything else fails, well, I guess I'll try praying. Prayer is central to the health of this church. Prayer is central to the mission of this church. I think about the times when we gather for prayer, whether it's Thursday um, uh, before the feast Sundays when we have the prayer summit here. You know, to encourage you, that's, I'm, that's not an optional thing. That's not like, oh, hey, you know, let's, we might as well pray, right? No, that is heavy lifting of our church. When we gather and we pray for the health of our church, we pray for the mission in our community, that's important stuff. Wednesday mornings, Walter and I, we gather to pray. And I want to encourage those of you um, who have a time on Wednesday morning at about 8.30 to come pray for the sake of our church and for the sake of our community. That's something I realize, um, I'm not sure if it's, if it's me or if it's our culture or what, but I know many of us pray individually. I know that you do that faithfully. But us gathering together as a church to pray, I think, is an area that we still need to grow. And maybe that's like different places. Maybe that's area, like things that are closer to uh, where you live or what. But I think that's an area that as a church we need to grow where we gather together for the purpose of praying for our church and for God's mission in our community here. That's where the heavy lifting happens. I know we're programmed to think it's, you know, it's the practical stuff. It's when I'm out doing stuff. That's what really matters. You know, God can still use that. But I think it's so much more effective, so much more powerful when we pray before, when it's bathed in prayer, when it's led by prayer. All right? So he's saying, so that we will pray. Then he moves on to this. He says, above all, above everything else, love each other deeply. Love each other because love covers over a multitude of sins. Okay, now again, this is the word agape. This is, many of us have heard that. This is like the willful, purposeful, intentional love of somebody else. This is not the warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, I sure feel love for my church. Hopefully you do. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying love people. Actively love one another. All right? And then he says um, this, so it becomes a top priority. And Peter is remaining faithful to Jesus' teaching here. Jesus taught, you know, love one, a new command I give to you, love one another. Because I have loved you, so love each other. Love is central to our faith in Christ. 
So he's saying this, um, that it covers over a multitude of sins. This covers over um, even the things that we might say or do to each other. And I think he's saying, you know, cover over is kind of a, of a minor thing here. Like, you know, oh, somebody said something to me and it was a bit offensive, but I don't really think they meant it to be. Like it covers over that sort of thing. But it also enables us to work things that are more hurtful. Sometimes we as a church family, we'd say or do things that really hurt each other. When we love each other, that means we take, um, because we love each other, we will work through difficult things. We'll say, you know, what you said to me, I'm not sure if you meant it this way, but it hurt. I was offended and I would like to work it out with you. When we love each other, those are the sort of things that we do. That's a healthy church. Unhealthy churches stuff it. They stay quiet about it. And it festers and festers until you've got all these sort of unspoken uh, fractures in a church where, oh yeah, I don't speak to those. I don't speak to that person because they did that thing to me five years ago and I haven't spoken to them since. That's unhealthy. A healthy church says, you know, last week you said this to me and it hurt. And I tried to just get over it, but I'm not. And I need to talk with you about it. That's a healthy church. That's how we handle things. You know, think about it too, like this church, actually I was talking with, um, um, with a friend of mine and she was saying that she just went recently to a larger church. Uh, she was just traveling. She said, you know, I'm grateful for our church because we're small enough where we can actually still know each other. And she said, you know, and that's something I was just thinking about, that, that as a church, we don't have the option of just avoiding somebody. It's not like there's 300, pe- 300 people others in here uh, that we can just sit on the opposite side of 200 people and avoid them. This is a real church family. And so if we have things between us, we have to keep working it out. As difficult as that is, some of you grew up in families where you openly talked about conflict. Some of you grew up in families where that was the last thing you did. Well, I'm asking you to, uh, to be courageous. And for the sake of the health of this church and our mission in this community, we have to keep working through things as a church. We have to love each other. Because when we love each other well like this, when our church is healthy, speaks to our community around us. Trust me, people know when, they, when a church is unhealthy. People look in into the church and they think, man, that's the last place I want to go. I mean, look at those people. They're like cats locked together in a box. You know? I'm grateful that I don't, I don't get that sense here about our church. But I do want to encourage us that we keep working at the health of our church. It takes work, I realize it. But Peter is calling us to it that we love each other, not feel warm and fuzzy about each other all the time, but when it's difficult, we intentionally, actively love each other. Okay. Then he keeps going. He says, offer hospitality to one another without, without grumbling. I think this is, again, like an extension of that love, that we are hospitable to each other. Hey, come over to my house. We're having lunch. We'd love for you to come. We'd love for you to come, and they come, and you're hospitable to people, hospitable to our brothers and sisters in our church. And he says this. He says, each one should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. God has given us gifts. And this is, uh, I'm not sure if Peter's talking specifically about spiritual gifts here. He does talk, just say charisma, uh, charismata, which is often translated as spiritual gifts. Or if he's just talking about gifts in general, like some of you uh, are great woodworkers, some of you are great mechanics, some of you can cook amazing things, some of you can uh, lead well, that we share these gifts here specifically, at first, with our church family. 
and hopefully eventually with our community around us. And I think uh, this is something I was realizing that I want to say to us this morning uh, as I was thinking about this particular part of this passage is that this church, I love, um, I love the family of this church. I know we don't get it right all the time. Sometimes we blow it with each other. But this church, um, we are blessed with the size we are. You know, we're not a giant church of 500 people where you can just show up on a Sunday and watch the show. We are a church of 70 to 80 people on a Sunday morning where people will know you, they will care about you, and where we have to contribute together for the sake of this church. We all have to be contributing to this church, to the health of our church. This church is too small, honestly, for us to come and just watch the show. We have to be involved. We have to be contributing. And I love it how, um, as I look and I'm thinking about this morning, as I look across this room, I think about the numerous ways most of you are involved in this church, contributing, serving, sharing your gifts, helping one another out. And those are just the things that I know about. But I want to encourage us as a church to continue contributing to the health of this church, to the ministry of this church. And if you are here and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I didn't know we're supposed to contribute or I'm feeling a little convicted because I'm not sure how I contribute, talk with me. My goal is to help you join in and contribute to this church. Not just for the sake of this church, but for your sake as well. You know, as I've been studying about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus, an important marker of a healthy person who has a healthy relationship with Jesus is they are actively serving somewhere. So that's a great kind of litmus test. You know, if you, one, are coming on Sundays, that's a great place to start. Coming on Sunday to praise God and to worship Him. If you're gathering in a small group in addition to that, that's another great thing. And if you are serving in the church family, that's like, that's, like the, that's like the trifecta. That's like the hat trick. Those three things together are a good sign that you are in a good place with Jesus and that you are growing in your faith. So if you are here this morning, you're feeling maybe a little convicted, like, oh, I'm not sure how I'm contributing, come talk with me. This is not meant to be a judgmental or a guilt thing, but to begin talking about how we can all contribute to the health of this church for the sake of God's mission here. All right, so uh, Peter says this, and then he says, um, if anyone speaks, they should do it as one who's speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he or she should do it with the strength God provides. Now, he might be speaking specifically about people with speaking ministries or people with serving ministries. Actually, I think he's actually just saying whether you do it in word or action, do all of it in God's strength, relying on God, relying on the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the both word or action, all of it comes from God. And then he says this, he says, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. This is the point of everything that he's been talking about so far. So that God would be praised. And that's what I've been talking about as well. I've been hoping to make that connection for us, that everything we do, everything that Peter is calling us to as a church, whether it's loving each other, whether it's praying for our church, whether it's hospitality, is to, com- to contribute to the health of this church for the sake of the mission. Okay? So the people around us see the way this church loves one another and cares for one another and praises God and says, you know what? Whatever else you might say about, about Jesus, when you look at the Balfour Covenant Church, you see that it changes people's lives 
And they actually care for each other. And they praise God because of it. That's the point of everything that Peter is talking about here. And then he adds this, um, this little cherry on top. It says, to him, to Jesus, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Almost like the, the last little flurry of to Jesus be all the glory and power. So he says, because uh, the end of all things is near, love each other well. He says, trade up. Leave the muck. That was the first part we talked about of our relationship with our whole life. He says, leave the muck. Love your church. Above everything else, love your church. Love your church family. Show up for each other. Care for each other. Using the gifts that God has given us to contribute to the, mission, to the ministry and to the mission of this church. Now, I was thinking about it this week. Uh, again, like I said, as I think about the involvement of most of you in this church. And I am grateful for the ways that you have joined in and contributed. But I want to encourage us, for those of us who still wrestle with the muck of our old way of life, leave it behind. You've done enough time there. It's cost you too much. Leave the muck behind and love the church. The end of all things is near, so love the church. Stay sober and clear-minded so that you will pray in compassion for this whole, uh, for um, this church and for our community. And above everything else, loving each other, serving each other with the gifts that God has given us. If we will do that, or continue to do that even more, because I think that in a lot of ways, many of us in this church are doing that well. If we will keep doing that and grow in this area, the health of our church, we will become even healthier. We'll become healthier as a church and we'll see more of the people around us realizing who Jesus is and begin following him. Because the healthier we are as a church, the healthier we are in mission. The two just go together. And so I hear Peter encouraging us, encouraging us to leave the muck of our old life behind and to love your church, to share the gifts that God has given you. And if you have questions, I, just, I don't know what my gift is, talk with me. I want to help you figure that out. That we can all contribute to the ministry, to the mission of this church. That's what I hear Peter speaking to us this morning. Amen.